Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's nice to see you guys here today. If we haven't uh, had a chance to meet yet, my name is Tom Pocket, and I get to be one of the pastors here, and uh, it's my privilege to bring you the message this morning. I'm going to continue in a series of messages that I've been bringing uh, called Through the Bible. My commitment is that over some undetermined space of time, we're going to make it all the way to the book of Revelation. Made it all the way to uh, First and Second Chronicles so far. And we'll do it in pieces, and we'll drift to other subjects, and then come back and do another chunk. And so today, we are in uh, First and Second Chronicles, which we're looking at together. And, uh, you know, we're going to just continue the way we have been, inviting the Lord to come and speak to our hearts from His Word. So, Father, I thank You for this gathering. I thank You for every person in this room. I know You had intention in bringing every one of us here. We are not here by accident. We are not even here by a series of our own choices, but we are here because you are the living, sovereign God, and you have called us into this room. You have called us into this room to to come under the authority of your presence, to come under the ministry of your spirit, and to come in submission to the truth of your word. And I thank you equally for every person that's in this room and invite you to come in powerful, discernible, clear understandable voice into every single person in the hearing of this message now, Father. Lord, I've prepared, I have things to say, but they're of no value if you don't say them. So we invite you to come and to be the teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to continue with the same structure that we've been using and looking at the other books of the Bible looking at context, looking at main storylines, and then looking at a hot spot, and then seeing what God wants to do. If you're newer here, that's the way we're approaching this survey study of the Bible. And we start each week by looking at context, and that means the bigger picture in which the specific portion of Scripture that we're thinking about comes. Context is so very important, and we've seen people take things out of context and do horrible things with the Word of God. And so it's important, it's an important step. The context of First and Second Chronicles is, first of all, that it was written by Ezra. Ezra, the same Ezra who comes next in the Bible, who led the people out of Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. The very same Ezra. And uh, I think this is important, because as you look at First and Second Kings, which we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks, and look at First and Second Chronicles, have you noticed that there's a lot of repetitive material in both of them. But the, here, here's a perfect example of why context is, is important. Though they're talking about the same things, the points of emphasis are very different. And in First and Second Kings, written by Jeremiah, a prophet, now First and Second Chronicles, written by Ezra, who is a priest, and they're different points of view. And so even if you look at the end of Second Chronicles, from Ezra's point of view, it ends differently than 2 Kings because there's a recognition by King Cyrus, who is the king of the Persians, who let the people come back to Jerusalem. There was a recognition that the one God is the one true God. And he said, because of this, you guys need to go back and rebuild the temple. And so, from a priestly point of view, you see why that makes a difference. As you go through First and Second Chronicles, you see emphasis on... Things such as um, uh, Hezekiah's uh, purification of the temple. You see Josiah's reforms. 
And, and so you see more of an emphasis on what happens in the tabernacle and the temple. And uh, this would be something that would be of more importance to a priest, Ezra, than a prophet. And so you, you see the importance of this difference. And I think another point of context, if you really want to get your heads around this as a student of the word, is that this was written now after the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah was writing up to the point of the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Ezra is now writing. He may have written this during the captivity, but definitely after the event had occurred, after Nebuchadnezzar had come and conquered Babylon. Now this is critical, and you'll be able to relate readily to this, because something that has happened in your lifetime that has changed the way you look at the world, tell me what it was. 9-11, 9-11, exactly. And I want you just to think about the, the difference in the way that you think about the world before September 11th, 2001, compared to afterwards. And it's a very different perspective, isn't it? This would have been a, a comparison to the difference between Jeremiah and Ezra. And so in writing about the same accounts, it would have a different kind of perspective. And I think the context is important to realize that, that First and Second Chronicles really treats uh, all of the kings uh, of Israel and Judah. From, it even includes Saul in the very beginning, and that's a little bit different than the, than the kings, the First and Second Kings. It's a good overview of the context. Hold that in mind as you read and try to understand. The main storylines of First and Second Chronicles are straightforward. There's a, it begins with an ancestral record from Adam all the way to King Saul. So there's a detailed ancestral record, which just makes for exciting Bible reading, doesn't it? And I know that a lot of you guys have those ancestries on your refrigerators, and you're memorizing them at mealtimes and stuff, and it's like, wow, this is my memory verse for the week. And uh, this is critically important but would have been very important to Ezra as a priest who's trying to establish the line of God in the process of all of this. Talks about King David's military campaigns. King David was, he was a warrior. He was a fighter. And keep in mind that in the conquest of the promised land by the judges and then handed over to the priests, or uh, to the king, sorry, that King Saul and King David were warrior kings, whereas Solomon and then the split between Israel and Judah, all the kings that flowed after that, they were peacekeeping kings. But David is really the last of the warrior king. Uh, Also in 2 Chronicles is Solomon's reign and the building of the temple. You'll remember that all of the articles of worship of the people of Israel were contained in this thing called the tabernacle, which was very portable. I mean, not very portable, but it was movable, and it was not a a permanent structure. You may remember that David wanted to build the temple. He wanted to build a house for God. And God said, when did I ever say to do that? You're not going to do that. Your son Solomon will do that. And so Solomon builds the temple. And then uh, also you just see the reign of all the various kings from Saul to the Babylonian captivity. It's kind of an up and down thing, isn't it? And this king, Hezekiah, Josiah, they did right, it says, in the eyes of the Lord, and they were faithful to the Lord as their father David was. 
would say. But then you look at many of the other kings along the way, and it said that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So you have this up and down, in and out, faithful, unfaithful kind of account. So with this context, and with these main storylines kind of hovering in your mind and saying, okay, now I want to interpret the Bible, I want to interpret the words, you're in a much better position to do that. So what I do each week is I say, okay, Lord, First and Second Chronicles, that's a, that's a lot of material. And I, I, I just pray to God for a hot spot. Where, where can we focus our attention, both mentally and spiritually? Where can we put our hearts before you, Lord, and say, would you speak to us in this passage? And, of course, there are obvious places you just want to rush to. You want to rush to 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land? But that's not where we're going. Because there are things that seem obvious, and then when I put my face on the floor before the Lord, there are things that seem clear. And as I've mentioned Recently, the voice of the Lord has never been so clear, so commanding, so uncompromising. And I'm grateful for every bit of it. So our hot spot of all places is 1 Chronicles chapter 18. And we're going to look at the first six verses. 1 Chronicles Chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. Subject is trusting God. First Chronicles 18, 1. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Remember, he was a fighting, he was a warrior king. And he took Gath and its surrounding villages from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites, and they became subject to him and brought tribute. Moreover, David fought Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamath, when he went to establish his control along the Euphrates River. This is a fighting warrior king. Catch this. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. That's your hot spot. Reading on, when the Arameans of Damascus came up to Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. I'd like you to compare the last part of verse 4 with the last part of verse 6. And see if you can make a connection. Last part of verse 4, it says that David hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. And then look at the the rest of verse 6. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. He he, he hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. I mean, you kind of want to ask a question. What is that? Right? <laughs> what does that even mean? How do you hamstring a horse? Well, I think we can 
get there in our understanding of what it means to pull a hamstring, yes? Let me ask you this. Does pulling a hamstring tend to speed you up or slow you down? It tends to slow you down. And hamstringing a horse in the day was a very primitive surgical procedure where actually a certain tendon was cut in the horse in order to prevent it from having its maximum strength and having its maximum speed. It sounds brutal to us, and I can only imagine how many people it took to perform this veterinary procedure. But that's what it was. The the horse was still, after healing, a functional beast of burden, but it was a lot slower than it used to be. Well, why would David do this? It says David captured a thousand of his chariots. Let's do some math. We've seen Ben-Hur. I mean, at the minimum, there are two horses in front of these chariots. At the minimum. Conservatively, this was 2,000 chariot horses. Strong, fast horses. And David hamstrung all but 100 of them. Why would he do this? Well, God made something very clear to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16. To Moses, God said, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. So what would have been centuries before the Lord gave an abiding command that carried over to the judges and to the kings that says that the king is not to amass for himself a great number of horses. And that was observed by the judges and by the kings all the way to, guess who? Through David... Guess who broke the command? Second Chronicles chapter 9, verse 25. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horses which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Part of Solomon's fall was this sense of, I'm Solomon! I am above the authority of God. I will have 700 wives, 300 concubines, thousands of chariots, thousands of chariot horses, because I'm Solomon. The word to Moses in Deuteronomy was, do not go back to Egypt to get more horses. Verse 28 says, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from all other countries. Could it be more obvious? This was an abiding command that was given by God and was yet another element of Solomon's tragic end. 
But I think a question in your mind would be, why would God even make such a command that you can't have a bunch of horses? I've got two answers. Ask me what the first one is. First one is because of God's intended location of blessing. Listen carefully. In these times, the location of God was understood to be very intensified. It was understood by the Hebrew people that the presence of God sat on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of the Tabernacle, that that's where God was. And that the blessing of God emanated from that place. And so, in these times, it was clearly God's heart to keep his people near Jerusalem in order to do what? To bless them. So it was God's heart to keep the people of God intensified in a specific area, the boundaries of which he had clearly defined again and again, yes? Horses were the technology of the day for fast and distant travel. It was the means of dispersion. It was the means of exploration. It was the means of, I wonder what's over there. When God was saying again and again, I want your attention here. I want to bless you. I want to keep you here. And so the prohibition against acquiring great numbers of horses was part of God's plan for keeping the family together in one place in order to bless them. Now contrast that to the New Testament. When Jesus said, the risen Jesus, the last thing he says to his disciples is what? He said, all authority, he says, from Jerusalem, from, he's, in, he's, from, he's standing in Jerusalem, the, the central place of God's blessing, and he says what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And he said, and surely I'll be with you even to the end of the age. And then the commensurate outpouring of the Holy Spirit was the mechanism by which God fulfills his promise to be with us. So the old, one of the great paradigm shifts between the covenants is centrally located, intensely centrally located, that God, his presence is seated on the Ark of the Covenant to, boom, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now get on out of here. Go. So God was saying that the new covenant now makes it incumbent upon ourselves as Christians to actually spread out. And so Wednesday night of this week, we had a sending service where Rob and Lindsay Hawes, who they and their three kids are heading off to Namibia, Africa. In a couple of weeks, Karen and I will be leading a group of some 20 people to Nicaragua. Why are we doing this? Because God said, Go! God said, don't just stand there, do something, man, go. Go. The comparison between the Old and the New Testament is in the Old Testament, you had to have a reason to go. You had to have a command by God, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Otherwise, you were commanded to stay. In the New Testament, you got to have a reason to stay. Otherwise, you better get going. 
And the principle is the same in that the blessing of God is in obedience to his command. So when God said, I want you here, and no horses, must not acquire a great number of horses, the obedience to that command, staying tight to Jerusalem, brought about God's blessing. And the the principle is the same. That when God says, my blessing is now in Namibia, you got to go. You got to go. And you can fuss with it, and you can argue against it, and you can stand and you can say, but I don't want to go. And, and the Lord will not change his heart. His blessing is there now. And if you're called to go, you better get to going. Because you're living a substantially less blessed life. You say, oh, but I like it here. Yeah, but you can't imagine the splendors of God's mercy and love and blessing that you're missing by not being there. So first of all, I think the reason for him hamstringing the horses was, was this. And second of all, I think that it was the element of trusting God. The superior military technology of the day was the chariot. It was fast. It was armored. It was heavy. There were always more than one person in it. There was a driver and a warrior. And the warrior could be an archer. The warrior could be a swordsman. The warrior could have, you know, one of those swingy things. What are those things called? You know, with the big thing you don't want to get hit with? What are those things called? What? Mace? Uh, Mace? Like, mace? Same thing? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. How am I not surprised that you know that, Carl? Your kids are very well behaved. No, I understand. Don't make me get the mace. Reminds me of a game that we used to play with our kids at home when they were small. Brian will remember this. Yeah, the sock game. Did I ever tell you about that? You just take a pair of socks. Some of you parents, you've got to get this. You take any pair of socks, and you put one sock inside the other. Jock socks work best, especially back in the 80s when they were like this long, you know? You put one inside the other. Maybe put a couple inside the other. And you just chase each other around the house, and you swing, and you just beat the bejeebers out of each other with these things. And we would suffer injuries so badly that we went to wearing motorcycle helmets, football helmets, and the neighbors would see us running around beating our kids. So our kids had to wear helmets. What do we call that, Brian? Morning sock? Huh, I don't know. The chariot was the military technology of the day. It was fast, it was armored. One one would drive, another would fight. They would drive over the tops of foot soldiers. It was unstoppable, and it was dependent upon fast horses. They were the Goliaths of the day. How do you effectively fight a Goliath? By trusting God. All the superpowers of the day would have been armored up with chariots. How do, you, how do you fight that? With more chariots? You fight it with five stones, a slingshot, and a complete trust in God. The prohibition against acquiring great numbers of horses was also to keep Israel from shifting their trust from God over to their own military might. 
David captured a huge number of these animals, and then he was faced with a choice. Obey God or increase his own human strength. And he placed his trust in the God of heaven. David was so committed to this that he wrote a psalm about it. I love Psalm 20, don't you? I love this. He was so committed to this. Psalm 20 says, May the Lord answer you when you're in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. We will shout for joy when you are victorious and will lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He answers Him from His holy heaven with the saving power of His right hand. And here it is. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And that was the difference. So he hamstrung the horses and trusted God. As a nation, we say we are one nation under God, and even our money boasts in God we trust. But I think it's evident to any thinking person that neither is true. You don't have to be a theologian, a sociologist, an an anthropologist, or anything of the sort to realize that the notion of God has been relegated to a cultural compartment. And so you are glad you're welcome to be any part of our culture because you just put your God in the compartment. Just keep your God in the box. The American experiment is rapidly failing as we give away our founding distinctives and our accelerating move towards syncretism and globalization. I do not believe that the United States was ever, nor was it ever intended to be a Christian nation. I don't believe that. By that I mean it was never intended to be a theocracy. But the United States was, in every way, meant to be a democracy founded substantially by Christians who understood that the Christian mindset would always be the prevailing perspective. And we have compromised and given away the very core of things that ever made our nation great. We say in God we trust, but that is not true. Our national trust is not in God. Our national trust is in two things, our economy and our military. As Wall Street goes, so goes the national confidence level among the people of America. The evening news will tell you when to be happy and when to be concerned by whether the Dow has risen or fallen. Our trust is in our money. Our trust is also in our horses and in our chariots. We have the most massive and sophisticated military on planet Earth, and we take great pride in that. We have enough nuclear capacity already loaded into missiles hidden in secret silos and on ships and submarines floating around the oceans to destroy every population on the Earth many times over. A soldier in Arizona can sit in a bunker and remotely command an armed unmanned drone that can destroy a target anywhere on the Earth. And we write songs and we boast about how tough we are. And it really could not be more obvious that, our na- that as a nation our trust is not in God but in our chariots. 
And yet in spite of this massive military power on September 11, 2001, we suffered a massive single-day loss of life that exceeded Pearl Harbor in an air attack that was all orchestrated by a tiny army of people who didn't even own a single aircraft. When the Japanese surprise attacked Pearl Harbor, they launched 353 heavily armed aircraft from six aircraft carriers. When Osama bin Laden surprise attacked the U.S. mainland, he used four aircraft that were stolen from our airports that were full of two weapons, passengers and full tanks of jet fuel. And then it took the U.S. military and other militaries of the world ten years to catch Osama bin Laden because he had the advanced technology of being able to hide in the caves of Afghanistan and Pakistan. While our national trust has shifted from the God of heaven to our money and our military, we were savagely and effectively attacked by cavemen. Because we don't trust God. We got this. We got it. You know, it was on April 22nd, 1864, in the peak of the violence of the Civil War, that Congress repented and fell before God and authorized the motto, In God We Trust, be minted onto every coin and printed on every dollar of the U.S. Treasury. And I can assure you of two things. That it was abundantly clear that as that Congress voted to emblazon the motto, In God We Trust, on all of our currency, that the God they were referring to was the one and only God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that there would have been no concern for how that may have fallen with people of other religions, either here or around the world. And the other thing is that if the present Congress of the United States could humble themselves and seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways, that God would hear from heaven and forgive our sin and heal our land. Our passage says... The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Why? Because he hamstrung the horses. He was completely obedient to the call of God, however illogical. So, what do we do? We do two things we repent. And we trust. Thinking that next week we'll talk about what it means to trust God. There are some obvious questions that come up in our minds. I mean, personally, how does that work at my address? What does it mean to trust God? When I get sick, do I not go to the doctor because I'm trusting God? Do I not plan for my retirement because I'm trusting God? We'll deal with that stuff next week. I mean, how does that come home to us personally? But I think... This week, I think God's calling us to do one of those two things, and that's to repent. To repent. We can't repent on behalf of policymakers of our nation. We can't repent for them. And you might say, what good will it do for us to repent when we're not the ones who are making these decisions? What good it will do is because God is calling us to repent, and because of the sovereignty of God, I believe He's calling not only the few hundred of us here this morning, but the thousands and millions of Christians are across, the, across the nation. He's calling them to their faces to repent. And if one thing is true of our nation, it starts at the ground level. It's a ground swell that changes what happens. And so it starts here. 
It starts here with a repentance, with an understanding that, oh God, we have not trusted in you. We have trusted in our money, and we have trusted in our military. I have trusted in my own strength to solve my own problems, and this has carried over and exponentially multiplied between here and Washington, D.C. It starts here. And it's never, ever too late. Jesus said, we must work while it is still day because night is coming when no one can work. We need to repent. Would there be some of you who are stirred by this who say, I want to join you in repenting and would just want to come up and just join me in repenting? Would there be anyone who would just want, you just feel stirred by this, that it, it's, the dots are connecting in the spirit and you just want to come up and join me in repenting before God? I'm not saying that anybody in this room had an active part in getting us where we are. What I'm confessing is that I've had a passive part in getting us where we are. And I want to repent of that. Just repent for our nation. Repent that we have rejected the authority of God. That we have hypocritically emblazoned his name on our money. And then excluded him from virtually every aspect of our functioning government. But it is not too late. There is still a chaplain in the U.S. Senate. There is still prayer offered, however perfunctory, there is still prayer offered. In the legislative halls of our country. So let's just start it here. Let's let this be the epicenter of repentance for our country. You know, repentance just starts by letting your heart ache. Just letting your heart ache for it. We need to repent. I don't know if there's any of you like me who has shown up faithfully at the ballot box, the toll, the ballot booth, and been surprised by what you saw and saw names of judges you had no idea and you either just clicked indiscriminately or said, well, I'll just leave that to others. We can't do that and complain about justice, can we? Let's repent. We are still a democracy. Let's bring this democracy back under God, the one true living God, the Father of the only begotten Jesus Christ. Follow you, Lord. We want to follow you. Lord, it's a mysterious thing to even apply what it means to hamstring the horses of our own lives. We, we don't know, but we're, we're saying we want to know, Lord. We want to understand this. We want to know how these abiding principles of the Scripture apply in the here and now. We want to know how to access the power of your Holy Spirit to be faithful to these things that you speak to our hearts. We want to be an unusual people, a peculiar people, 
chosen generation, a royal priesthood, Lord, those who convey the truth and light of God to the world. So come, Lord, and see our broken hearts, in some cases our sudden awareness. And we repent before you, O God, as citizens of this great nation, we repent before you. And we invite you to come, Father God, and to speak at least to us, if not to everyone on the planet, about making you the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and the one that we will follow. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. Tell us what the next steps are to call us.